Okay, if you could turn to Luke chapter 5. We're uh, done with our uh, mini-series on the lost things and kind of going to do a uh, thematic study through Luke. We're going to hit the meals that Jesus has with people. Uh, That's going to be our our focus. And um, at the risk of uh, sounding repetitive, uh, we also just recognize that uh, each of those meals, something different happened that Luke wanted us to pay attention to. So I won't be saying the same thing every week, I think. But uh, we'll see how that goes. So uh, there was a reason why I had Jerry read the earlier part of Luke 5 to kind of set some of the stage for what we're going to be looking at today. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Light of the world, uh, you have shone into darkness. You have come to bring truth and life to a people like us. Help us to see the truth and enjoy the life that you have brought. Help us to understand, believe, and love the truth that is found in this portion of Scripture through the illuminating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At community group this past week, the kids were in the living room, I guess. I'm not sure what room to call that room. Uh, usually they used to go hang out at the McCurdy's porch, porch, but they got disposed, they got moved out. So they saw, they were watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a great film, as well as a great book. And one of the distressing parts of that is Edmund. Edmund does not start off as a very sympathetic character. Uh, Edmund uh, goes into Narnia after his little sister does, but he's afraid because he has met the White Witch. And he's afraid because he has sort of betrayed his sister. And so he lies about the existence of this place called Narnia and basically uh, makes his sister look bad as though she's the one who was lying. But Edmund's treachery is not done because he has fallen in love with the Turkish delight that the White Witch has given him. And because of that, he, is a, he becomes a traitor to Narnia, to his siblings, and ultimately to Aslan, the ultimate king and creator of Narnia. And as you watch, you're, at least me, maybe you're different, but I'm afraid of Edmund 
because of the acceptance that Edmund comes uh, receives because they don't yet realize that he is a traitor, but you know. You almost want to scream at the TV. Don't do it! Aslan, don't let him near. Peter, Lucy, keep away from your brother. He's treacherous. So, to some degree, I can almost understand the mindset of the Pharisees as we look at this passage. But just as we will see with the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, there is a deeper reality that is going on that actually redeems traitors. Our big idea is that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Pretty simple. I'm stealing from Luke. That's all I'm doing. The first part of this I want us to think about and explore is that Jesus calls unlikely people to follow him. This uh, portion of Jesus' ministry is taking place in Galilee, and in particular it's the, the little town of Capernaum. And if you were on the road traveling, it would be the last village on the road out of Galilee. And so as sort of a border town, it is quite natural that there would be a custom house or toll booth right there waiting to greet you as you come in or as you leave because, you know, they want them taxes, right? What would often happen, or not what, often, what did happen, is that Rome would bid out the services of the tax collector. You know how some cities today will bid out the services for tax, tax garbage collection? You know, usually they go to the lowest bidder. Uh, but Rome loving its money, uh, would uh, give the contract to the highest bidder. So that would be the chief tax collector. And we see one of those in Scripture, a guy named Zacchaeus. But he's not in this passage. Okay, The guy like Zacchaeus would then hire other tax collectors to actually be in the booth and uh, collect the money as well as the fee that the chief tax collector wanted them to collect. And so these tax collectors, as we've, notion, uh, we've mentioned before, uh, they got more than what the actual tax was. Sometimes they would use uh, unscrupulous methods in order to collect it. They were not liked. They were considered to be traitors, traitors to the nation of Israel, but also because of Israel's relationship with God, they were also considered to be traitors to God. And so, in a sense, it's not just, you've done me wrong, me, you know, Mr. Israelite. You're doing God wrong, and you are doubly a traitor. And so they're sort of like Edmund. For the pursuit of some money, they're betraying God and country, while Edmund, for some apparently really tasty snack food, was betraying family and kingdom. Now, officially, the Talmud in Sanhedrin 25b calls them robbers. So it wasn't just sort of a common uh, understanding of these people that they were doing wrong, but actually it was the religious understanding of, of tax collecting that was considered to be them to be robbers. And so here is the first uh, evidence of the slogan you find online, 
taxation is theft. Okay? So, that sort of sets the stage. Jesus in this town, Jesus seeing a tax collector's booth, and Jesus observing or seeing a particular tax collector by the name of Levi. Now, the word that's used here can mean more than just seeing, like, I see Eric. I'll pick on Eric. But more the idea of, I observe Eric. I'm paying attention to Eric. I'm staring Eric down. No, that's not what I'm doing. So Jesus may have more than simply observed, noticed the existence of, but may have actually been paying attention to and watching this tax collector named Levi. What he sees is unusual. He is not observing a person that you and I would normally recognize as uh, someone with most likely to be a spiritual leader status. You know, he wasn't that that charismatic guy that in high school that was voted most likely to succeed. Okay? Levi is probably listed as one of those people most likely to stab you in the back. Okay? Remember, he's a traitor. He's a robber. No one likes him. No one except other wretched people like tax collectors want to be around him. There's nothing about Levi that would we would imagine would draw Jesus to him, and yet Jesus seems to be drawn to him. Such that Jesus says two words. Follow me. Now, what's unusual about that is that rabbis would generally enjoin people to follow Torah. And Jesus is telling him, follow me. The living Torah would be sort of the implication. What's really interesting is I was uh, looking at this whole chapter earlier this week. We have these words, On one occasion, in verse 1, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He's not in a synagogue. He was not reading the Torah. But they were there to listen to the word of God. The words of Jesus are identified with the word of God by Luke. This is part of Luke's greater, you know, underneath it all sort of arguments that you see in his gospel here. Jesus is inviting him to follow God himself. When he says, follow me. He is calling for Levi's personal allegiance to himself. He's calling Levi to leave his allegiance to Rome. He's calling Levi to leave his allegiance to himself in his own little personal kingdom, which was growing. He was a wealthy man, most likely, not as wealthy as Zacchaeus would have been, but still, by all standards in that day, doing pretty good. And Jesus is calling him to leave those allegiances behind and to join himself with Jesus and his cause, which, of course, is the kingdom of God. You see, 
Jesus is not coming up to him. And he's not saying, traitor. He's not speaking words of condemnation to Levi here. But rather, he's inviting Levi to a new life, a better life, as Jesus' disciple. Which was incredibly unlikely. Which was completely countercultural. Which made, from a human viewpoint, no sense whatsoever that Jesus would do this. Why would he want someone that everyone else looked down upon to be his disciple? But Jesus, as the true king, as Jesus, as the true Israel, is inviting this tax collector to side with him instead of siding with Rome and siding with his own personal interests. Jesus is calling this particular sinner to repentance. In these two words, follow me. Stop following your agenda and now follow me. We didn't read it, but that up at the beginning of this chapter, we see the call of Peter, which essentially is the same thing. Follow me. And Peter's initial response was not, yeah, let's get going. His initial response was, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In other words, why me? Have you lost your mind? There's no way I should be in your presence. Peter was saying, just as much as there's no reason Levi should be in the presence of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. When we grasp the holiness of God, this should make no sense to us. But he... Peter and he, Levi, are similar to Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah 3. When the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? He's not concerned about the holiness of Joshua, the priest, in and of himself but because he's going to redeem this high priest, the one who's supposed to be offering sacrifices for other people. He's like a stick of wood that's been pulled out of the fire before it can be consumed. God is showing mercy. And part of that mercy that is shown is that his filthy robes are going to be removed and he is going to be clothed in new, perfect robes. So uh, this call of Levi here is very similar to Jesus' call of Peter, another sinful man, to leave everything and to follow him. It's kind of interesting. 
You think about it. It sounds a lot like marriage. Leave and cleave. Repentance is leaving the old life of sin and cleaving to Christ so that you might have the new life of righteousness. That's what Jesus is inviting this man to do. This is what Jesus invites all men everywhere to do. And so, you see, I think if we look at this, we can recognize that not only does Jesus observe people who need Him, but that Jesus puts people into our path because we belong to Him so that we can observe them and recognize they need Him and call them not to follow us, but to follow Him. But perhaps I get ahead of myself. Jesus does call people to follow Him based on their needs, not His. Based on His gifts, not theirs. And so indeed, Jesus calls unlikely people to follow Him. Secondly, we see that the gospel spreads through relational connections. The the response of Levi was that he left everything, he got up from his booth, and he followed Jesus. The Levi, just like Peter, had walked off the job. Can you imagine doing that? Walking off the job. Not because you're mad. Not because you've got a lucrative offer elsewhere. (laughs) But because this rabbi shows up and says, follow me. So not only do Jesus' actions not make sense to us from a human perspective, uh, neither do these guys' actions make sense to us from a human perspective. But Peter could always go back to the nets. He didn't sell off his boat. He didn't sell off his nets. He was a part owner of this company, and he could have gone back to it any time he wanted. Levi, on the other hand, has burned most of his bridges because he didn't work for himself. He worked for someone else. And maybe he would get another job, but he wasn't going to get that job at that income. And so Levi makes a very costly decision. But he didn't burn all of his bridges. We see that Levi made for him, referring to Jesus, a great feast in his house. I just quit my job. It's time to party. (laughs) This doesn't make sense in some some ways. But there's a freedom that he feels... Not so much because he's no longer a tax collector, but because now he's connected to Jesus. He's been collected by Jesus. I remember when I finally got my job at Ligonier Ministries. Um, I was so excited, and it wasn't so much that I was working at Ligonier Ministries, but that I had finally gotten a job that got me out of the rescue mission. (laughs) I knew that I was burned out. I knew that I had, uh, no, I knew I was broke. Uh, there were a lot of things, and I, I sang a song. Free at last. Free at last. 
Thank God, thank God, I'm free at last. That's how it felt. And I imagine that's similar to how Levi felt. He didn't probably able to process this theologically, but there was probably a great sense of relief that he experienced. And he wants to celebrate this, and so he has this great feast on behalf of Jesus. He, it's, it's natural to invite your new friend to your house, but he doesn't just invite Jesus and the other guys that Jesus just picked up by the sea to his house. He has a whole bunch of people at his house. See, he brought old friends. There's this one episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza's worlds collide. You see, he wants to keep his world separate because there's uh, his his world with his fiance Susan, and then there's the world with his friends. And for some reason, he doesn't want them to connect, and so he gets very upset. Um, that Elaine has somehow become friends with Susan. And so, worlds collide, uh, George kind of screams out. Levi is not like George. Levi wants his worlds to collide. And the reason he wants his worlds to collide is that he wants these other people to meet Jesus. He, He sees if this man can love me, a tax collector, this man can love them. If this man can invite me to follow him, perhaps this man can invite them to follow him too. He wants his worlds to collide because he wants redemption to come to his world. He's able to do this in part because well, one, he can afford to have a big party, but two, homes like the, like his would often have a courtyard. And so you didn't have to be in the house to be really a part of this thing. Just think of it as like a big barbecue. Sometimes we don't do this as, as often here in Arizona as we did like back home because it's 115 degrees. So um, not all year, but the people would hang out. People could pass by and see what was going on and be curious. And and uh, that's probably how the Pharisees uh, got involved in this whole thing. Uh, but it wasn't just five people in a living room. There's a, We don't know how many people were there, but it sounds like it was a rather, rather large group that was partaking in this feast and getting to rub shoulders with the rabbi. What I want us to note here, though, is that our relational connections are the first and obvious place for evangelism. Because we know these people. And we know their needs. And they know us. And hopefully they've realized something has happened. If we're, you know, anything like Levi, who was an adult, uh, as children, it's a little more difficult at times. But we see, we should see covenantally that the very first place we begin this process of introducing others to Jesus is by teaching our children the truth about Jesus, and we should teach them that truth joyfully. 
That's why we read from Deuteronomy 6 this morning. That shouldn't just be like an Old Testament thing. Because that's God's pattern. Teach your children. Teach your children the truth. In that, he says that word diligently, not occasionally, not every once in a great while, but that be something that you're regularly engaged in is teaching your children about who God is and what He has done for sinners like us. But that's not where it stops. That's only where it begins. Jesus also uses sometimes one family member to convert whole families. Uh, There's one book that Amy read uh, about a year or two ago, and it was about a family of Mormons. And it was written by the mom. And she was a professor at BYU. And so this family was really vested in the Mormon, dare I say, church. Okay, the Mormon experience. How's that? One of their sons went on mission to Florida. And for some reason, he kept talking to this Baptist guy. And this Baptist guy has him looking at the Bible and looking at the the claims of Christ, and he ends up becoming a Christian. And soon he wasn't the only one. Soon the whole family had become Christians, and she lost her job and all of these things because Jesus, the real Jesus, was more important than anything else. And she had felt the call to follow, and by the grace of God she did, as did the whole family. Now, I say that keeping in mind that I'm the only Christian in my family to this point. And so I don't say this as if it's some magical thing where... You become a Christian and everyone else in your family is going to become a Christian too. Because in my family of origin, I'm it. So, it's not a blanket promise. But it is sort of the responsibility. You're not responsible for how they respond to the call to follow Jesus. You're just responsible to invite them to follow Jesus. But we also see, who's there? Tax collectors. What does that mean? That means his old work buddies. The guys he used to hang around with. The guys he used to talk about how to cheat people better. Those guys. They're there. The gospel also spreads through work connections. But what is very important uh, that I will remind you of at this moment is that this was on personal time, not work time. So don't tell your boss, sorry boss, i got to share the gospel with this guy right now. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. But there are lunches and there are times outside of work where you can talk with the people that you work with about the things that are going on in their lives and there may be opportunities for you to talk about Jesus in the midst of that. And so, changed by Jesus, like Levi, we begin to see Jesus change those in our relational connections, our web of relationships. Thirdly, Jesus comes to call the sick and sinful to repentance. You see, while not invited, because what 
tax collector would know a Pharisee to invite them. Uh, okay, none. Uh, though they were not invited to this feast, the feast caught their attention. Okay? They paid attention. They saw and they were concerned. This is not right. You see, just the, 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 the phrase or the, the name Pharisee comes from the idea of separation. Their um, mission, so to speak, the, their, their mission statement would have had, had something to do with being separatists. Not separatists in a political sense, but separatists in a religious sense. Okay? Uh, going back to Leviticus, we see, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. We see also in 1 Kings chapter 8, For you separated them from all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And so they took that idea of being a separate people very seriously. And how they applied it was they took the laws for the priests and applied it to themselves, though they were not priests. So there was sort of like the higher standard, okay, of holiness. And they took this uh, th- this idea very seriously. And so uh, they approach the disciples who are not separating themselves from the unwashed masses of the sinners. So uh, when we were looking at the, the, the three parables of the lost things, we started off that idea of, of the, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. Well, you know what? That wasn't new. It started all the way over here. Hint Luke chapter 5. Because they're grumbling. They're muttering to themselves under their breath. And, and they don't go to Jesus, but they go to the disciples. And why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with traitors? Why do you eat with sinful people? The reason they separated was they had the mistaken notion that they would essentially catch sin like a virus. That if you got too close, (laughs) you might catch that sin. Okay? And so you must keep yourself away from these other people. And so they're seeing that the disciples and Jesus himself are putting themselves at risk by hanging out with these not-so-nice people, these non-religious people. And sort of there is the subtle accusation, are you traitors too? The disciples, there's no record of the disciples responding. Luke records the response of Jesus instead. We're going to see a lot of that as we go through this series, where Jesus is responding to questions that have not been asked of him. 
And part of it is because he knows the secrets of men's hearts. Okay, He may have overheard in this particular instance, but Jesus tells them something that should be fairly obvious to them, but they've apparently overlooked. He says, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. There's an incomplete parallelism that he uses. Those who are sick do need a physician. You're supposed to fill that in mentally. Okay, They're unhealthy. Jesus is basically saying, I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. Physicians don't hang out with healthy people. Physicians hang out with sick people to make them well. And if you want to understand the ministry of Jesus uh, during His earthly ministry, it was hanging out with sick people that He might make them well. And even leading up to this, we see two events. The first is the leper. Now the leper finds Jesus. He says, you can make me well. Will you? And Jesus does what he's not supposed to do. What's rule number one when you encounter a leper? Do not touch. You will become ceremonially unclean and you may catch leprosy. And so you're not supposed to touch. They, you know, they didn't have those nice rubber gloves like we have today. Okay. What does Jesus do? He touches him. But instead of being made unclean himself, and instead of catching leprosy himself, Jesus heals the leper. He is the great physician, able to do that which no one else in his time could do. But we see his pure righteousness there because he was not able to be contaminated. Not only that, but then we see this this paralytic, this man who's been paralyzed, his friends bring him to Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's not what they wanted. But Jesus says, pick up your mat, go home. Jesus healed that man physically as well as spiritually because he's the great physician. What problem should the Pharisees have with that? A man who makes the people well. Jesus receives those who have problems much like a doctor does. He receives them with compassion. He does not, he did not receive them with condemnation. What did you do to get this leprosy? What did you do to become paralyzed? I know you're a sinner because you're paralyzed. Jesus did not do that. Jesus simply made them well. Now, of course, pride, being what pride is, often keeps many people from admitting that they are sick in need of a doctor. I know many wives are used to this. They have husbands who refuse to go to a doctor. I'm one of those husbands. I've got to be well near dead before I will go. (laughs) But 
the leper and the paralytic got it. They somehow knew that there was a man who could help me. And he did. And so I think part of what we take from this or can take from this is that we're, we're also to offer the gospel to those who are afflicted and excluded. Some of the people you're, you're intended to observe are those who are afflicted and excluded and offer them Christ. The great physician who could heal their soul. But Jesus continues, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus came, He says, for sinners. He didn't come to gather all the people who are righteous already. (laughs) He came to find the people who are unrighteous and make them righteous. Just as a doctor finds the sick people and makes them well. Jesus is the friend of sinners, but not the friend who leaves them sinners. Jesus knew his calling. He was a preacher of repentance. That is, that's how it all begins in, in the three synoptic gospels. Jesus began to repent, repent, uh, sorry, preach. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is it at hand? Because Jesus the King is here. So you best be repenting and believing. That was his message. And so he's reminding the Pharisees, that's why I'm here. I'm here to to preach about repentance, to call people to repentance. And the people I'm calling are the people whose lives are messed up. They need help. And I'm here to help them. And so we see this continued, for instance, a couple weeks ago we looked at this from the perspective of Isaiah 55, the wicked man leaving his wicked ways, leaving his wicked thoughts and receiving pardon. We see in Acts 8, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Turn away from this wicked intention you have that you might be forgiven. We see similarly in Acts 17, uh, during uh, Paul's sermon, he mentions At the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. So there's no one who is excluded from this call to repentance. You see, Jesus has no illusions about our condition. But unfortunately, the Pharisees have illusions about their own condition. They're not seeing themselves as sick people needing to be made well. They don't see themselves as sinners that need to repent. They're above it all in their own eyes, but not in the eyes of God. But there is an issue here. Repentance itself doesn't resolve guilt. There's still the problem of guilt and condemnation. What happened in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe? The white witch came looking for Edmund because he was a traitor. And as a traitor, he deserved to die. Lewis was reminding us that the wages of sin is death. Edmund needed to die. But instead of Edmund dying, Aslan says, take me instead. 
picture of the gospel because that's what Jesus did. Take me instead. Jesus stood in for us uh, who deserved to die because of our sin and was crucified in our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He took the guilt and the condemnation upon himself so the traitor could go free. And so Levi experiences the freedom of forgiveness because Jesus has experienced the wrath of God for him. The pardon of God is not cheap. It came because the wrath of God was satisfied. Because it was poured out on the Son. And so, while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, faith clings to Jesus. That leave and cleave thing again. Faith clings to Jesus and His work in our place as enough to remove guilt and condemnation. And so, we leave our efforts at self-salvation. We leave our, our efforts of pursuing our life through a pursuit of sin. And we cleave or cling to Jesus, who alone is our salvation, who alone is the, our substitute, who took the wrath of God that we deserve, who fully obeyed the will of God that we were supposed to but didn't. So, let's wrap this thing up. We see that Jesus is not put off by big sinners like Levi and the other tax collectors. We see instead that Jesus actually seeks them out to make them His disciples. It's His idea, not theirs. Realizing real life is in Jesus and not in their wealth, their power, or pleasure, they begin to share Jesus within their relational connections. They discover Jesus is the friend of sinners, and they begin to tell sinners about this friend. They discover that Jesus is the great physician, and they begin to tell the broken and afflicted that they know about the great physician. Do we, do we believe in a Jesus who's worth offering to those who struggle with sin and sadness? Do we trust Jesus with our own sin and sadness? Or are we still under a veneer of Christianity trying to deal with our sin and sadness on our own? Let us see Jesus for who He is. The great physician. The friend of sinners. And love Him for who He is. And point to Him so others could see. Let's pray.
Father, this is not a God that could be conceived of by a mere man like Luke or Peter or Paul. Because Jesus is the one who does what nobody expects. Jesus is the one who comes to save sinners. Help us to trust in that Jesus. A Jesus who comes to find people like us. Help us to be more observant, Father, of the people around us, noticing those who are dealing with sin and sadness. And grant us courage to say, I know someone who can help you. And his name is Jesus. Can I tell you about him? Grant us boldness in that sense to offer people life in Jesus because we have found life in Jesus. And there's plenty to go around. Make this shift in our hearts for those of us who still struggle with it. To the praise of your glorious grace, in Jesus' name, amen.